We're still in this first section of the book of Revelation uh, that covers the first three chapters of the book. It's dominated in chapters 2 and 3 by these letters from the Lord Jesus Christ to, the set, to seven churches, seven different churches in Asia Minor. But they are intended, each one of them and all of them together, to be relevant and applicable to all churches for all time until Christ returns again. Hence, if you were observant when I posted yesterday in the group me about what the upcoming passage was, I said we're going to study Christ's letter to us through his letter to the church that we're going to study this morning. This morning we're on the third of those letters. Um, having already studied two weeks ago his letter to the church in Ephesus, last week his letter to the church in Smyrna, which means today we'll look at the third letter addressed to the church in Pergamum. That is in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Before we read that passage together and begin thinking about what we're going to see in it, I, I want to point out a somewhat obvious uh, aspect of human nature um, that might be get our minds right uh, as we think about what was going on in Pergamum. We have an inherent tendency, an inherent urge to conform, to blend in and not to stand out. Um, we know that to be true. Uh, we see it all around us. We see it in our own hearts. We have an inherent tendency, an inherent urge to conform to what or who is around us. Um, to blend in, don't stand out as different. It's such an overwhelmingly universal phenomenon that it, there's no way that I could illustrate all the different ways in which that even shows up in our lives. We just know it does. I think one funny way that it happens a lot is the way we talk. Um, I remember that when my sister, now I'll just go ahead and say, I, I'm from North Alabama, and we got some people from North Alabama in here, and you know, if you're from North Alabama, we don't say white. We say what? Lot, not white. We know it. That's how we talk. But I remember my sister, when she um, grew up and when she, she graduated high school and she came to Auburn, I remember it was like by her first Christmas break coming home. Because she just hurt, she didn't talk the way she did three months ago. She had taken on a, I don't know, a Birmingham accent or something. I don't know what it was. And, uh, and then um, after she graduated uh, Auburn, she lived in New York City for seven or eight years. And she talked different then. I mean, it's just, I mean, I, I, I've done it too. I remember uh, a few years ago, um, I, you know, we've been telling you guys to pray about what, how you're going to use next summer and spring break and to think about how the Lord might use you um, on mission somewhere in the world. We, we've been going to London. We have a trip to London spring break that I want you to pray about being a part of. If there's enough interest, we may go back again in the summer. But anyway, a few years ago, we went and worked in London, and we worked with a missionary who was there at the time, wonderful guy named Shane McKeska. He's from Texas. And I remember going to work with him, and he sounded like he was from Texas. But if you met his sons, who were like this tall, straight up British, I mean like Straight British. It's like they, I mean, that's just, they, they took on the language around them. Well, he's home now, Shane is, for a little while, and they're back in Texas, been there for a little while, and I saw them not too long ago and met his sons again. What do they sound like? Straight Texan. 
Um, we're all this way in a hundred different ways. We want to dress like the people around us. We want to act like the people around us. And even when we don't, when, even when we think we're making some kind of statement and not dressing like the people around us, not talking like the people around us, it's usually because we identify with some other subgroup, right? That we're, we're not really blazing our own trail. We, we want to fit in with the group that we want to identify with. And we, we don't want to stand out. Um, and in a lot of ways, that's absolutely normal because you don't, I think that's just a grace gift of God to us that he put a desire in us to not look like a weirdo or to talk like a weirdo. But at the same time, it is a tendency that runs deep in us and it can be a struggle, a dangerous thing for believers when we all, we come to the New Testament and we realize the constant refrain in the New Testament, warning believers against conforming to the world. Uh, against conforming more to the world than to Christ. Just a few examples before we come to our text here. John 15, 19. Jesus told his disciples, you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. James 4, 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever makes himself a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Just one more. 1 John 2, 15-17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone does love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride in possessions. By the way, those th- why, did, why those three things? Those mirror Adam in the garden right? We're not different. All that is in the world, those three desires, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So with this theme repeated over and over again, all throughout the New Testament, it's very clearly a warning to every Christian, to every church, to keep a close watch on ourselves um, and take honest assessments of our own hearts and minds with the Scriptures with the help of the Holy Spirit, with the help of one another. That's why the church is important, uh, to see if we're conforming more to Jesus Christ or to the world. The letter to the church in Pergamum this morning is an example of the word that the Lord Jesus Christ brings to a church in which worldliness or world-likeness was creeping in. If you could summarize Ephesus as a church without love, You've abandoned the love that you had at first. If you could summarize Smyrna in a good way as a church without compromise, he found no fault with them. Uh, Perhaps you could summarize the church in Pergamum as a church without conviction. Uh, And I think you'll see that as we read and think through it together. So if you found Revelation 2, we need to read it together, verses 12 to 17. Follow along with me as I read aloud. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, 
who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. All right, let's pray. Oh Lord, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word, and we ask that as we come to it, Um, As we think carefully through this passage and every other one that we will consider, that you will give us eyes to see the truth. Give us minds to understand it. Lord, would you please give us hearts to embrace it? Would you give us wills to obey whatever it is you call us to do? Please give us all ears to hear, just as Jesus urged us here. Let us hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Give me the help that I need to teach, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so it's clear from the letter, if you notice, that there were some in the church who were faithful. Um, At least for a time they were faithful. There were some in the church that he says, he commends them in verse uh, 13. He says, for holding fast his name. They, they They didn't waver. And he even mentions one of them in verse 13, by name Antipas saying that he held fast to the name of Christ even to death. Um, But it's also clear from this letter, it doesn't take you very long, um, that there were many who weren't, who didn't hold fast to the name of Christ. Um, And that is one of the missions of the church, that we hold fast to Christ together and we help each other hold fast to Christ. That if some fall away or begin to go astray or to use the prophet Jeremiah's term, start to backslide... Um, that's not on all of us, but it reflects on all of us. And it, and, it, and it brings some measure of responsibility on all of us. Which is why Jesus didn't simply write this letter to those individuals who were going astray. He wrote this letter to that entire church. Um, and, 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 and as we walk slowly through this letter, here's, here's how I want us to think through it together. There's a lot of aspects of this I want to think about, but we'll move through it quickly. So if you're taking notes, here they are. First, we're going to think about the presenter. Who, how does Jesus present himself in this, in this letter? I've told you already that the way Jesus presents himself in all these letters are very important, very significant to what he's about to say in the letter. We're going to think about the presenter. Then we're going to think about the place. What about Pergamum? What was this place? What was it like? Verse 13, then we're going to hit the praise that he does give to them. Some of them held fast to his name, even Antipas to death. Then we're going to come to verse 14 and think about the problems. And notice that's plural. In the the churches so far, it was singular. This is plural. Then we're going to, when we think about the different problems that he points out to them, we're going to come to verse 16 and, and see the prescription that he gives to them to repent. 
uh, or, or it, what will happen if they don't. And then, like it is with every other letter in this, um, in this first section, he ends the letter with a promise. Um, and we'll think through that. It's, a, it's quite an elaborate one in this particular letter. That's where we're going. So let's think about the presenter first. I, like I said, I've noted many, many times already that the way in which Jesus identifies himself, the way he presents himself is significant, and it's no exception here. And uh, he presents himself, like I said, in a way that's important and significant, very pertinent to what he's about to say to them. And so look again at how he presents himself to them in verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, and here it is, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, a couple of things I would, I would say about this. One, we know that this is Jesus describing himself in this way because he has already been described in this way in this first section. Like if you just flip over to chapter 1 again and look at verse 16, this was a description of a highly symbolic description of the Lord Jesus beginning in verse 12. 12 to 16 of chapter 1 is this highly symbolic um, description of Jesus in like this divine warrior figure. But in verse 16, in his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was shining like the sun in full strength. And you can go back to chapter 2, but you don't have to turn there. But at the very, near the very end of the book, in chapter 19, when you have this description of the Lord Jesus coming Again, he is described as one uh, in this way, with a sharp two-edged sword. But putting those two together, and, and in chapter 19, it's, this sword is coming out of his mouth. So right here, it just says, to Pergamum, he who has the sharp two-edged sword. But in chapter 1 that we just saw, chapter 19 that I just mentioned, this sharp two-edged sword is coming out of his mouth, right? And so um, we, that, that is indicative to us that whatever this sharp two-edged sword is, it's referring to his word, this word that's coming out of his mouth. Um, how, how else might we know that this language of a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth is, is his word? Because we're not just bound to revelation. Hebrews 4.12 says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Ephesians 6 Paul is describing the armor of God. And in verse 17, he mentions the sword of the Spirit. Which is the Word of God? So, very often, God's Word is referred to as a sword. Sharper than a sword. And, and the fact that it's coming out of His mouth in Revelation. This is His Word. So, the Lord Jesus presents Himself to this church in Pergamum. When He does that, He's putting emphasis on His Word that is coming to them. Uh, and the letter invites us, though, in, in this description to ask an even more pointed question about that. What kind of word? What kind of word is he, is he drawing attention to to them? And I would submit to you that, that I think he's referring to a word of judgment against them. A word of judgment. I mentioned just a minute ago that Jesus describes himself like this again near the end of the book in Revelation 19. Uh, and that's, that's talking about his second coming at the end of all things. And in, in Revelation 19.15, his second coming is described like this. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. 
and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Okay, if that's not describing judgment, I'm not sure what is. So in Revelation, Jesus is presented with a sword or a a sword in his mouth or a sword coming out of his mouth, and it's in the context of, of judgment. And so it signifies not just his word, but his word of judgment. That's how the Lord presents himself to this church. To this church. And we know this is how it should be understood here because he, he's going to warn them in verse 16 that if they don't repent, what's he going to do? He's going to come soon and do what? War against them with the sword of my mouth. So he presents them himself to this church, reminding them he's not merely the lamb that was slain, as he did in Smyrna, but as the risen Lord and King who will judge even his wayward church, if necessary. I think we would do well to remember this about the Lord Jesus. Because the the Lord invites us to think about him in a multitude of ways that don't contradict each other. But they are facets of the same person. That he is our brother. He is one who is closer than a friend. He is, um, yeah, our advocate before the Father. But he is also the risen and reigning Lord and judge of all things. Right? That's how he presents himself. So the... Why does he present himself this way to them? To understand that, we need to think quickly about the place. So the place is Pergamum. We don't have any idea when this church began. Um, But again, there is a chance, if you were here last week, you might remember this. There is a chance that it began somewhere around the same time as Ephesus and Smyrna. I told you that the, 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 the order of these letters as they're presented, if you were looking at a map, I'm going to try to do this backwards, it would start right here and go up and down, almost like a candy cane, right? And that's the, that's the you got Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira. It's just going like that. That's the way this would have traveled once they, um, but because they, because they are so close together, it's likely that these three churches were started around the same time. We know that Ephesus was started in AD 52. Acts 19.10 tells us that how the word spread quickly in that whole region. So you might con- conjecture that, that maybe the next year or two, 53, 54, 55, these other churches started up through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. But we do know a little bit about the city of Pergamum from other sources other than just the Bible. Um, it was, Pergamum was the capital city of, uh, in Asia, this, this aspect, this region of Asia in the Roman Empire at that time. It had been the capital city of that region for some 250 years by the time this letter came to them. Um, that's, that's officially longer than we've officially been a sovereign nation. That's a long time. One ancient Roman writer and historian called Pergamum, quote, by far the most distinguished city in Asia. And it's, by the way, still a thriving city. Uh, in present-day Turkey. But notice how this city is specifically described in this letter that Jesus wrote to them. Look at verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And again, at the very end of verse 13, Antipas, who was killed among you, 
where Satan dwells. Uh, maybe you'll remember last week when we talked about Smyrna, how we mentioned how it was, a, it was a city that was very loyal to the Roman Empire and the Roman Emperor and how they engaged in emperor worship. Remember the story of Polycarp. I won't rehearse it again, but remember Polycarp of Smyrna who was one of the Apostle John's disciples, who was martyred in 8155. He was martyred. Why? Because of his refusal to confess what? Caesar is Lord. Lord Caesar. We're going to see, we're going to see as we move our way through um, the book of Revelation, that Satan is very active in the world. And that he doesn't just work in one particular kind of way. One very big way that, that, the, the, that Satan oppresses the church in the world is through oppressive governments. That, that's just going to be a fact as we, as we move uh, through the book. It's going to have two beasts later on in the book. And one of those represents oppressive governments persecuting the church. That's not a new thing. It's been going on through, since the beginning of the church. Very much still going on to, today. And, and, and if that was going on in Smyrna, you know it was going on in the capital city of that area. In fact, they didn't just uh, engage in those things. The practices had begun there. And other cities like Smyrna followed what they started. They built temples to, the, to, to living Roman emperors as well as to Greek gods. So there, was, there was a massive temple to the Greek gods Zeus and Pergamum. Um. And all of its citizens, like we saw in Smyrna last week, all of its citizens uh, were required at different times of the year and seasons to offer sacrifices to the emperor, offer sacrifices to other gods, or as we saw last week, most notably with Polycarp, face persecution, face even death. Many Christians in Pergamum refused to acknowledge these false gods and they faced the consequences for it, specifically on that note. Notice what he mentions in verse 13 about, as we think about the praise that he has for them. Right in the middle of verse 13, which is on, on its bookends, on the bookends of verse 13, it reminds us of, of Satan's dwelling and Satan's influence there. But he tells them right in the middle of that verse, Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. So Jesus notes and he praises the faithfulness of many in the congregation. And, 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 and as we noted already, he mentioned specifically this man, Antipas, calling him my faithful servant um, because he gave his very life and was killed for the Lord Jesus Christ rather than to deny him and confess Caesar is Lord. He praises not only Antipas, though, but he commends others who didn't deny my faith, even in the days where one of them was killed for their faith. Imagine that. Imagine how, how many of us would be faithful and continue steadfastly in pursuit of Christ and faithfulness to Him if literally one of us was killed for it, right? And you knew them, and they were your friend. How many of us might fall away or, or be tempted to cower in that? But that, this, is the, this is the reality in which they lived. I, sometimes I think if we compare our Christianity to theirs, I feel like a lot of places in the in the West, our Christianity would be unrecognizable to them. I mean, golly, 
How, how do we know that some of us might fall away or cower in fear of something like that? Because so many people in the Western church today fall away and cower for much lesser things. But they weren't perfect. The Lord also mentioned some of the problems, and, and we need to think about that quickly. After praise, praising the faithfulness of some, he gets right to the point in verse 13. But I have a few things against you, which had to be sobering to them. Um, to Ephesus, he said, I have this against you. To Smyrna, he had nothing against them. To Pergamum, I have a few things against you. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice, uh, yeah, and practice sexual immorality. And he continues in verse 15 saying, So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, that isn't the first time we come across these guys. We met them the first time in the letter to Ephesus in chapter 2, verse 6. Who in the world were the Nicolaitans? We don't know anything specifically about them. It is possible that we can know something about them from their name. Why in the world are they called the Nicolaitans? Like, um, the name Nicolaitan uh, perhaps comes from two Greek words. Um, The first one would be Nikao which means victory. It's where they get the word Nike, right? You got Nike shoes, Nikao, victory. Um, And Laos, which means people. Uh, So they were victory people. (laughs) They They were victory people, people who claimed victory. It's possible that they were, in other words, why are they called that? It's possible, and in a negative way, it's possible that they were the kind of supposed followers of Christ who made so much of their freedom in Christ. We have victory in Him. So much of their freedom in Christ that they abused His grace, they abused the freedom that they have in Him, and to engage in many things that they should not engage in as a follower of Christ. Maybe they were akin to those whom Paul addressed in Galatians 5.13 when he said, For you were called to freedom, brothers, Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Or maybe he's in line with Peter in 1 Peter 2.16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. If this is what the Nicolaitans were, then that may have more confirmation in the fact that they are here sort of equated with those who, according to verse 14, hold the teaching of Balaam. What in the world? You may remember Balaam in the Old Testament. Donkey talked to him and stuff. Balaam was somebody in the Old Testament who led the Israelites astray and tempted them to sin and and to turn away from the Lord and His commands, specifically by committing Uh, idolatry and sexual immorality. Where do we see that? If you want to, you can hold your place here and turn all the way back to the Old Testament book of Numbers. Numbers. If Some people never make it to Numbers in their Bible reading plan. 
that they start on January 1, and that's a crying shame. Just muscle through Leviticus and get to Numbers. And number, Leviticus is great, though, too, but anyway. Numbers 25. We made reference to uh, Numbers 25 back in the summer when we talked about the zeal of Phineas. That was awesome. Anyway, Numbers 25, verses 1 through 3. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. And so Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. What tempted the people to do this? What tempted the people of Israel to do this? To sacrifice to pagan gods? To be involved in those sacrifices to sexual immorality? They began to whore with the daughters of Moab. Why did they turn away from the Lord and turn to these things? Well, where, who tempted them to do this? Turn over to chapter 31. Numbers 31, now just zero in on verse 16. Behold these on Balaam's advice. On Balaam's advice caused the people to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor, which we just read about. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. That's what we're talking about in Revelation 2, which you can go back to now. I turn you to, I'm going to ask you to turn there. Just Sometimes it's good to look with your own eyes. In Revelation 2, when Jesus tells the church there in Pergamum, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, he was telling them that they had allowed false teachers or grace abusers. I'm not saying we ought to be legalists, but there is a, there's a way to abuse the grace of God in, in, in such a way that you don't really even understand the grace of God. Had allowed those to come into the church and to use Peter's word to use freedom as a cover-up for evil. They, they perhaps had convinced many in the church not just to tolerate those who do those things, who offered sacrifices to the emperor or offered sacrifice to other gods. Maybe, maybe they said, you can go do that, just keep your fingers crossed when you do it, just to stay out of trouble. Or maybe they had committed acts of sexual immorality as part of the rituals to the pagan gods. These false teachers in the church convinced many in the church, not, apparently not just to tolerate those who did these things, but maybe even to engage them in those kind of ways, citing their freedom in Christ to do it. We don't know exactly how. Maybe over time they saw what happened to Antipas, and they were teaching some of the others in the church just to accommodate and do what the authorities say. It's okay to offer sacrifices to the emperor and to other things as long as you don't really believe it. They didn't have conviction. They loved their own safety and their security and their own pleasure more than anything else. Remember that Paul himself said in 2 Timothy 3 that in the last days, and that is not just right before Jesus comes back, but in the last days, that is all the time between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. We're living in the last days and have been for 2,000 years. In the last days, people will be 
lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And then he said, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Paul would never say that any old pagan in Pergamum had a form of godliness. Who in Pergamum might have a form of godliness? Those in the church. And it's those in the church even in the last days who were lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. We don't need to deceive ourselves into thinking that temptation is, was just a reality in Pergamum and that it's not a reality right here. We simply justify a lot of sins in our minds. I've been just as guilty as anybody in my Christian life of using my freedom as a cover-up for things I should not do. Uh, you know, I'll just repent and he'll forgive me. But now notice something else important as we think about the prescription that he gives. Verse 16, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Some had remained faithful. Only some had gone astray and had no conviction about it. But all of them were held responsible. All of them were held accountable. All of them were called to repent. This is another implication of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, 20 when he said, as it is, there are many parts but one body. This is why, by the way, this is not a, not a total rabbit trail. It has, it has um, serious implications. This is why we are Baptist. <laughs> I'm not going far afield here. This is why we're Baptist. Because what do Baptists believe the Bible to teach? The Bible, we believe the Bible to teach in congregational church government and not a church that is completely ruled by just the higher-ups, the, the elders or the pastors or the overseers, the deacons. Like as if as we, do have, we do have a responsibility to know you and to... And to observe your life and to see if you're going astray. Call you to account if we see you going astray. But there ain't no way on God's green earth that I or anybody could know all of you in that kind of way. No, in fact, we are all tasked with that responsibility. We, we, are, we are congregational that you have just as much a responsibility to the brother or sister sitting right next to you as I have to that brother or sister sitting next to you. Now, I, that's, why, that's why Paul said in, in, in Ephesians 4 that he gave some to be pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. What's the additional role that I have? To teach and to equip so that you know the gospel and are rooted in the gospel and so that you're pursuing holiness in your own life, and when the brother or sitting, sister sitting right next to you is not, you can spot it, and you can go humbly and know that you have the responsibility to do that. See, that, 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 there's many parts. There's one body. 
right? And that is why when, when only some of them were going astray in Pergamum, they were all held to account. They were all called to repent. There are many different people in the congregation, but the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ, in His eyes, we are one body. Therefore, even when just some fall away, and some are lukewarm in their faith, some are engaging in willful sin, all of us are affected, all of us are held accountable, all of us are called to repent. And if Jesus, and Jesus says, if repentance does not take place, He will come and make war with that church. Unreal. Could be referring to the second coming. From their perspective, it, they might have thought, holy smokes. It could just be providential judgment, which is also bad. Either way, can you imagine? Because whatever providential judgment it would be, short of the second coming, Jesus still describes it as making war. Man. Because verse 17, again, pleads with us, He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And notice, churches, there is plural. This word is for our church as much as it was for the church in ancient Pergamum. The Spirit is speaking these same words to our church. Do we have ears to hear it and receive it? Are we bold enough to lo- and love Christ enough to seek to die to ourselves, die to our sinful desires, die to our sinful ways, and live passionately and purely for Christ even if that looks odd to the culture. One writer, Leonard Ravenhill, that you can always count on for a good line. He says, there are three persons living in each of us. The one we think we are, the one other people think we are, and the one God knows we are. Man, I just say, are we bold enough to let the Lord God search us and bring us low. Bring us low that we might repent. And who, who in the world wants to war with the Almighty Lord Jesus Christ? We bring ourselves low to Him, or He brings us low in His own way and in His own time. And as Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. And this text tells us that when we bring ourselves low in repentance to Him, He makes a promise. Think about this one with me as we draw this to a close. He says in verse 17, To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and with a a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. What? Uh, I'm telling you, Revelation's hard. Of course, this is symbolic. So what do the symbols mean? Well, we should do the best we can. I, I, I think the hidden manna is signifying the, the sustaining, sustaining presence, the sustaining grace of Christ with us. If we do have the boldness to, to bring ourselves low to Him, He is the bread of life. Like He and the manna was given to those in the Old Testament to sustain them by what God alone could give them. And so when we come in repentance, He sustains us as we bring ourselves low to Him. It's difficult to know what exactly was meant by a white stone, uh, being that there isn't any clear Old Testament background to that. 
like there's no white stone in the Old Testament. Um, but scholars do perhaps believe it was symbolic of victory. Like that there was like a, in, in some pagan ceremonies, that like the victor, part of the victor's crown had something to do with a white stone. Who knows? The new name is the stamp that we belong to Jesus Christ. It's not like we earn our belonging to Jesus Christ by our obedience, but we do prove it. We prove it. Is this saying we're to fight? Like I said, is this, is this saying we're to fight sin and repent in order to earn these things? No. Not at all. But the mark of a true believer is that they will do these things. They will fight their own hearts to walk in purity and holiness, repenting when we stumble and fall. And God is promising that when we persevere to the end in these things, we will know by the experience of, of all of our senses in the end, the final and eternal reward of, of His presence with us, of the victory we have in Him, the fact that we belong to Him. And it comes down to a choice. What is more precious to us? To have the acceptance of the world or to have the smile and the fellowship and the reward of Christ. We all have a tendency to conform. Are we conforming to the world or are we conforming to Christ? Let's pray. Lord, we all know ourselves to be weak and frail sinners. And sometimes we are even bold in our sin and our waywardness. Some of us, Lord, may be caught up in a sin, a sin pattern, a sin struggle. That perhaps they've been caught in for a long time. Knowing that to bring themselves low and to confess that and to walk away from it. Could have a lot of consequences. I pray that you would be for that person. Their hidden manna to sustain them. Remind them of, of the victory they have in you and of the new name that they belong to you. I pray that you would forgive us when we're guilty of the things that you had against this church in Pergamum. Forgive us for tolerating and even enter, entertaining the sins of our own hearts. I pray that you would give each of us the, con the conviction to follow you down the hard road of righteousness rather than down the easy road of sin and self. We ask it in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen.